However, standing by right now is the one and the only, Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my, go to my grave testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does, I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? You go ahead and chop me. Give me a big chop. I'll sell. I'll give you my whole chest and everything. And then I'll look at you like this, and then I'll punch you right in the mouth as hard as I can. (laughs) Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, once again, and welcome to... Another episode of Primetime with Sean Mooney. Coming off uh, a conversation with Sam Roberts. And I really, really enjoyed my chat with Sam. Uh, I loved hearing about his journey. If uh, you heard the episode, man. Um, you know, we, we actually got into uh, a conversation about, uh, you know, I told him when I first heard him, I was like, "What man, what's with that voice? And uh, what is with people, you know, why is he so popular? Well, then as I listened more and more, I understood why. Because uh, he uh, obviously has a great passion for professional wrestling, but also is uh, he's a, a great interviewer. Uh, he is he has the the basic need, the basic uh, want. What you want from an interviewer is he's just curious, and he asks questions that you would ask if you had a chance to sit down with the person he's talking to. That's uh, that's pretty much the the simple part of it. Uh, if you want to be a good interviewer, there you go. You need that curiosity and. Uh, and, and give people information that they want to know about that uh, subject that you're uh, talking to. But uh, really, really, I enjoyed that and uh, his, uh, his path to where he is now. The guy started out as an intern. I wanted to get, you know, getting into radio and ended up on the uh, Opie and Anthony show, which was a very, very popular uh, syndicated radio show for years and years. They just kept getting uh, thrown off the air, but uh, <laughs> they uh, were quite popular for a long time. And then he worked his way up with that group uh, uh, to become their producer. And uh, if you know how radio works, uh, you know, a lot of times people that uh, work on those shows, they wear a lot of hats. And in many cases, they become part of the show. You know, they become talent. And Sam did. He was very creative and he would come up with these bits that they would include in the show. And he would do these, uh, you know, different uh, scenarios that he'd come up with, these different bits, as I mentioned. And he would work himself into them, which was very smart. You know, you know if you want to not only have a creative idea, but make it so that you can be part of it and get out there. And that's exactly what he did. And uh, uh, he became you know, part of that show and then uh, took advantage of the opportunity that, that he had as a radio personality and uh, would be able to go to these events. And of course, he used that uh, leverage as, uh, and his uh, combined that with his love of professional wrestling and would go to these WWE press conferences and started interviewing the talent. And look where he is today, man. The guy has a really, really popular podcast. He's, he's all over the place. He does, I don't know, three or four a week. And then also has uh, 
made appearances with the WWE on their pre and post shows. So uh, Sam Roberts, man, he has uh, really become very successful and uh, has his own Sirius XM radio show. Uh, yeah, he's he's doing okay. And I want to thank Sam for coming on and love chatting with him whenever I get the chance. Uh, got some new things going on with PTSM. Uh, we've uh, relaunched our YouTube channel. We had one for a while there, but uh, you know, YouTube was not recognizing it, uh, saying that we, you know, we they don't tell you what is wrong with whatever you've put up. They just say it's not right, and we tried all these different you know methods of trying to figure out okay what is it is it this music we have in there in the episode is it this is it that and you just keep doing it and they you know just could kept denying it so we shut it down and then we started from scratch and so we've been rebuilding this youtube channel and we're getting to the point now we're getting a lot of people following it but we need more more so that they will recognize the channel and we'd love to have you subscribe all you have to do is go to YouTube, of course, and then uh, search Primetime Mooney. Search Primetime Mooney and go to the channel and subscribe. There's all kinds of uh, great material up there, all kinds of content, and some videos that uh, I've done. And uh, you can catch it all. So go to uh, YouTube, uh, search Primetime Mooney, and subscribe, please, okay? Uh, still a lot going on with our Patreon membership. Big shout out to our Patreon.com slash Primetime Mooney members. Um, a lot happening there. Uh, we've got uh, an Ask Mooney Anything coming out this week. Maybe I think it may already be up by the time you hear this, where uh, this is where we take your questions, of course, and um, and I answer them. And it's uh, it was a lot of fun and uh, loved, loved doing those. So that's just the, the latest. But, of course, we keep uh, putting up all that other material. If you are a member, of course, you get all of the podcasts early and ad-free, absolutely ad-free. And then, of course, if you uh, subscribe as a higher tier member, become a Mooney or a Legion of Who member, uh, you get a lot of other stuff. So uh, check out the channel. It's uh, patreon.com slash primetimemooney. That's patreon.com slash primetimemooney. And uh, join us. And I've got a few other announcements on the other side of this upcoming conversation, the main event. But let's get to that, okay? Uh, Ron Fuller. Uh, you may remember you as the Tennessee stud, uh, spent a lot of time in the NWA, the old days, the glory days, of the NWA. Uh, he also established the Continental Championship Wrestling Organization, which uh, he put together to compete with the WWF. And he talks about that in this, um, this conversation. And, you know, not only was he a very popular wrestler, and of course, your, uh, his brother, you know, uh, was also... But uh, Ron, um, Tennessee stud, was uh, not just a great wrestler, but, but he was a, a good, uh, quite a businessman and promoter and had uh, owned uh, several promotions along the way. But just some really, really great stories coming up. And he actually has his own website. I'll talk about it again at, uh, after we finish talking, but uh, it's called tnstud.com. And he's got over 100 episodes. And if you like old school, man, you're going to like the... Uh, the episodes he has up on there. He, uh, he calls it the stud cast. But anyway, that's all ahead in our conversation with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Take a listen. Ding, ding, ding. Hey, folks, if you have listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know I am fascinated with the history of professional wrestling and the early days of territories and how business was done back then. 
And that is just one of the reasons I am really excited to welcome Ron Fuller, uh, better known as the Tennessee Stud, because not only does he come from a family that has very, very deep roots, I probably should say that four times in professional wrestling, because four generations have uh, been a part of this incredible business. Uh, he was also a tremendous star in the ring and a great promoter. Ron, welcome to Primetime. How are you? Well, thank you very much, Sean. Uh, uh, glad to be here. Yes, doing fine. Yeah, you know, you've worn so many hats. Uh, what do you consider yourself first, a, a wrestler or a promoter? Well, wrestler, I guess. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, I started out as a wrestler, obviously. It's pretty hard to start out as a promoter, if, <laughs> you know, unless you've, unless you've got some money and, uh, yeah, right. you know, and, uh, but I, I come from, uh, as you mentioned there earlier, I come from the largest wrestling family on the planet. Uh, more than 20 members of my family have either wrestled or refereed and, uh, and did, uh, and in predominantly in the South, uh, we, uh, and my grandfather, uh, 19, started wrestling in 1925 in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Jeez. And, uh, he went then to wrestle for about, uh, four years on his own. And then he, he decided that he wanted to become a promoter and, and, uh, took a trip into Tennessee. And back in those days, there was very limited professional wrestling anywhere. And he started his own territory. Uh, became one of the largest ever, uh, 12 states in the South. He operated at one time in the, uh, 1950s. Wow. Uh, so went into 12 states. Now he didn't have all 12 of the states and all the cities, but he, he was going into and having matches in 12 different states in the South at one time. So, uh, yeah, I come from an older family. It's been there and, uh, kind of done it all basically. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I really want to get into your, your career as well. But first, you know, take me back because as I mentioned, uh, coming into this episode that I really, I am so fascinated by how this business was really established in the, the early years. And, uh, we, we always mentioned territories, but you know, this started with, with you, with your grandfather. And I think he was, uh, uh, born at the turn of the century. Uh, but, uh, you know, what was the business like then when, when this all started with your family uh, four generations ago? Well, my grandfather was born in 1902, uh, yeah. and he spent a lot of time with me when I was a kid. He he was a wrestler, obviously, and he was a promoter, too, and owned his own territory, and, and he would take me on trips with him, and, and I would ask him thousands of questions, and, and he was a remarkable guy, uh, and, and he had experienced so much in wrestling. It was amazing. But when he started, there was very little organized wrestling. Right. Uh, he actually got uh, got his beginning in in Borger, Texas. He was working in an oil field in Borger, Texas, which is just outside Amarillo. Uh -huh. And uh, Amarillo had some organized professional wrestling, which was most unusual. It wasn't a lot of places that you could find wrestling of any kind back in those days. And he uh, he met he went and. Uh, and met, uh, the, there's a guy that, uh, did the boys and boys clubs, uh, years uh -huh. and years ago. Gosh, was a tremendous big wrestling star way, way back. Uh, and, uh, through that guy, he met, uh, uh, Dutch Mantel, not the Dutch Mantel that people may think of right away. That right. I'm talking the original Dutch Mantel. Uh -huh. and, uh, Dutch Mantel, this is kind of the way guys made their livings back in that time. Uh, there weren't many, 
professional matches. So Dutch uh, taught my granddad to to, to wrestle. Uh, but first, like all wrestlers were taught back in the early, in that time frame, he taught him to shoot. And uh, and then then he he kind of turned him loose and he said, you know, you, you can make money in several different ways. You can you can go into fairs and you can wrestle on what's called the ballet back in those days. And they had mm-hmm. the fairs that travel around the country like they still do. And uh, you could go and challenge one of those wrestlers that was on the ballet. My grandfather was five, eight, probably one hundred and fifty pounds. Uh, you know, uh, this is the probably 1915, let's say. He put him on the ballet. He did not try to get him into a territory or send him any place. He suggested he go work in the fairs and uh, hone his skills as a shooter. Yeah. So, uh, so my granddad was the smallest guy on the ballet. They, he, he worked in the fair that was traveling with three wrestlers and he was the smallest one. So when fans got ready to challenge, to, to, to challenge one of the guys, and I think the deal was if you beat the wrestler, you got $10, which is back in 1900 was yeah. a, a fantastic of amount of money, right? So, yeah. Yeah. so, uh, he said all of them want to wrestle him, you know, because he was the smallest guy on the yeah, stage. Right, right. They figured, well, we might could beat the small one, right? But, uh, Roy was really tough. My dad, my grandfather's name was Roy, Roy Welch. Uh-huh. And so Roy was really, really tough and, and he never lost. I said, how many matches you lose in the ballet on the ballet? And he said, I never lost one. You know, he goes, uh, he says, if you lost one, you probably lost your job, you know? So, <laughs> so you know, uh, so. And just a real quick little story here to give you an idea of how, what kind of guy Dutch Mantell was. Dutch Mantell was very wealthy at this time. He was one of the first guys to own an automobile in the, in the West Texas. And oh. he, he, uh, he would ride in on horses and he would go to these small towns all around the West and he would go into the saloons in the late afternoon when they start congregating there. And he would be real loud mouth guy and he would start screaming, Hey, I'm a, I'm a great runner. I'm the fastest guy anybody's ever seen. I'll cover anybody's bets. Find the fastest guy you got in the town. We'll go out here in the street and race. And so they would all get together. Wouldn't be much betting on that first round because they didn't know who he was. Maybe he is a fast guy, right? He wasn't really big. So. Yeah. He goes out and he'd race and he'd lose. And he'd come back in and he'd be mad then and he would slam his fist on the tables and he'd say, you know, I'm, I'm strong. I'm a real strong guy. I'll arm wrestle anybody. Well, by then, you know, the bets would get bigger and because uh, he wasn't big. And then they usually had a big guy in town that was strong. They'd go find the guy. They'd bring him in and they'd, they'd do the arm wrestling right there in the saloon. And uh, he'd lose the arm wrestling contest. And, oh, he would really pitch a bitch in, you know, like, oh, I can't believe it. You know, and he would say, all right. He goes, I'm going to double the bets and I'll wrestle. I'll beat anybody wrestling right outside in the dirt, you know. And uh, and he said then, he said, then my granddad said uh, that uh, he told him, uh, Dutch told him, he said, God, he goes, Every one of them would run out of the saloon. They would go round up all their buddies. And there's yeah. an idiot down here at the saloon, man. And he's just throwing away money, right? So he said they would come then and he would hesitate. He'd draw it out as long as he could till he had yeah. all the money in town, basically. <laughs> and, the, and then they would go out in the street and he'd just hook the guy. Bang, 20 seconds. Right? Just the guy be screaming like crazy. Oh, God, no, he'd break his leg, whatever he had to do. And then he would... uh 
sack up all the money and he'd, he'd just ride his horse 20, 20 miles, 30 miles away. There weren't many cars. People wouldn't, didn't know him. Yeah. And he would travel around the West till he got fabulously wealthy working this gimmick. Hustle, so, man. so the guy, you know, and Dutch then worked out of Amarillo later on in the twenties. Uh, and, uh, so in about the 1925, he sent my grandfather to Columbus, Ohio, one of the few territories in the country. Ohio had two wrestling territories, one based in Toledo and one in Columbus. And my granddad was about six, you know, about five, eight, and maybe he weighed 160 yeah. pounds in, 165. And they called him the Canadian Wildcat or they had some kind of name for him. And anyway, that's how he started. And, uh, and then he eventually moved on to become a promoter of his own, opened his own companies. Uh, he was kind of a, he was a tough guy. So, so in order, when he got there in that Tennessee area, he would find these cities where they would have little matches and he would just show up at those matches. He would go in and kick the dressing room door open for the baby face side or the heel side. And he would say, uh, Hey, I, my name is Roy Welch, and none of you guys in here are wrestlers. In fact, I want you to get your bags, put your stuff in it, and get out of here, or I'm going to beat <laughs> the hell out of you, right? Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, I, I asked him, I said, well, you know, <laughs> did they all leave? And he goes, no, no, not always. And he goes, and, uh, what did you do? And he said, well, I beat the hell out of him if he didn't. <laughs> you know? And then he'd go over to the other dressing room, kick the door in, <laughs> do the same thing. And then he would find a promoter, and he had a little way of, and, and wrestlers were very scared of him. They were all horrified of him. Yeah. And he would grab a guy by the throat and stick his thumb way into his throat, the promoter, he'd do this to the promoter who's not a wrestler and he's not kind of a scrawny guy. He wouldn't beat him up. He wouldn't hit him with a punch, but he would squeeze his throat and he would say, you're finished. Don't ever, don't ever promote wrestling again. If I ever see you run a town, I'm coming and I'm going to do what I did to those guys that just left. Right. So, so that's how he built his business. He just started wow. taking over towns and then started running them himself. And, uh, so he was a, he was a really, really, he trained the first wrestling bear ever in history. Uh, really? Yes. And the, and his bear, uh, all <laughs> bears they train nowadays, they have no canine teeth and they have no claws. They pull their teeth and their claws. His bear had all its teeth and all its claws. And he was an 800 pound bear. He was oh a big God, son God. of a gun. Her name was Ginger and uh, it was a female bear. And he, uh, I asked him, I said, how do you, how do you train a bear? I mean, you know, aren't you scared of the bear? You know, a bear can slap your head off. I mean, you know, I, I knew enough to know bears a very dangerous animal. And, uh, and he said, that's what I did to him. And I said, what do you mean? That's what you did to him. He said, I slap him. And I was like, yeah, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and what would he do? And he said, he's scared of me, you know? So, so, uh, so he had a bear and he, he ran this territory until World War II started. And then he took his bear on a, on a North American tour. He took it into Mexico. He took her into Canada. He took her to California. He took her all over the country. Every night, every town he went, even though it was wartime, 
uh, he was selling out. They people never seen a bear wrestle, right? I mean, it's like wow, you know. Yeah. He would have to have two guys one on the floor, and they had ropes around the bear's neck, not to keep the bear off of him, but to keep the bear from leaving the ring, yeah. you know, and getting into the crowd, right? Yeah. And uh, and he he traveled, uh, built a trailer for the bear. He traveled for five years in the early part of the 1940s, and and just uh, made a ton of money with his bear. <laughs> and then when the when the war was over and, and business picked back up again, uh, the guys, all, the men all came home, you know, went back to wrestling again. But he was a he was quite a character, man. Yeah, very innovative. You know, and he probably didn't even realize that he was promoting the first intergender matches with the female bear. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, I don't think people really ask very much. Is yeah. that a male or a female bear? <laughs> But you know, and all yeah, like you lose it, to a bear, it, you it, lose it, to a bear, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, but uh, you know, if it had been a male bear, I, he might not have been able to do that. I mean, the fact that she was a female, it may have helped him a little bit. Instead of picking a big old male bear that would have slapped his head off or whatever, shoot <laughs> him up. In fact, the bear actually almost killed my dad when he was twelve years old. Uh, Roy would take the bear and stake her out into the yard uh, so she could get out of her cage and, and let her be outside. And he put her on this long chain. And my dad was about 12 years old. And all the kids that lived in the neighborhood knew he had a wrestling bear in his yard. And, and they would say, we want to see the bear wrestle. And I don't know if you've seen bear, bears wrestle, but Roy was the first one because he had the first bear. He His deal was the bear would wrestle him. You know, he didn't let him, wouldn't let him wrestle anybody in the crowd. God, he, he you know, he was scared he'd kill them. But uh, he would wrestle the bear. And at the end of the match, he would give his bear a bottle of Coca-Cola. And she would sit up on her rear end and drink the Coke. And the, all the fans would do That was a great part of the great ending for the night with the bear, right? Yeah. So my dad knew that she loved these Coca-Colas. And he's 12 years old. And his buddies come over one day. Roy's in the front of the house. And the bear staked out in the back. And my dad gets all these young boys around. And, and he, he, he goes and gets a Coke bottle. He doesn't have any money. He can't buy a Coke. He gets a Coke bottle and fills it with water. And he goes over close to the bear. He thinks the bear's at the end of her chain. She wasn't really quite at the end of her chain. And he sets the bottle of water down there, and she reaches and gets that bottle, and she sets up to drink it as soon as the she realizes that it's not Coke and it's water. She drops the bottle. She just uh, came down on all fours and lunged out there and grabbed him by the heels and drug him underneath wow. her. And uh, she started trying to uh, bite him in the uh, in the in the stomach, and he g- was able to get his hands inside of her mouth, and she bit up all of his fingers and messed up all of his fingers really badly. But he was almost about to get away from her. He was scratching with his feet and trying to get out from under her, and then she reached out and dug those big claws in her. She didn't have any mittens on or anything like that. She dug that claw into his thigh and pulled him back under, and she reached in and bit his thigh muscle and pulled it out of his leg. He's 12 years old. Wow. He said he said she bit it in two while he was watching, and the blood flew everywhere, you know, and he passed out at that point. And Roy heard him screaming, came around, screamed at the bear, and the bear got off it. But, you know, how you live with a bear in your backyard, you know, for five years? And, wow. I mean, it's a dangerous thing. It tormented my my grandmother and my dad because they were horrified of the bear. And when Roy yeah. would 
not have the bear booked and he would go himself, he'd leave that bear there with him. And sometimes that bear would get out of his cage and try to get in the house with him. And, uh, well, well, a great lesson here though, uh, Ron, uh, folks, if you're listening, uh, if you're going to give a bear a Coke, make sure it's the real deal. Make, yeah. it, make sure it's the real thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It might but, save, well, that, might that save a few stitches and, uh, you know, my dad yeah. had, Scars up and down his legs all his life, Jeez. and uh, people would go, "How'd you get those scars?" And he would say, "A bear," and everybody would laugh like, "Oh yeah, sure." <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, but but it was the it really was just the wild business back in the day, and uh, you mentioned that uh, they had fairs, you know, and in wrestling, really the original uh, wrestling it was like carnival, and they had that's like the based on the cards, like vaudeville, where they would have you know the the main event, and that's that never changed, but it it did begin to evolve. And at what point did they really? You said there was a few territories, but when when did things really start to get organized? When this became a legitimate business, where you had promoters kind of carving out their part of the United States and other areas? It really began about the 1920s and uh, yeah, early 20s. The early mm-hmm. 20s. Uh, and there was a few guys that were really well known. Uh, uh, gosh, uh, I can't recall their names right now, Jason. I wish yeah. I could, but uh, they they uh, they were going around the country and wrestling in certain cities, and uh, they were starting to do a little business. And once they they started to work a little bit, I mean, uh, everybody was shooting. Uh, you know, and yeah, so, yeah. so uh, in the early 20s, they the the smart guys got together and said, you know, we can make a lot more money here if we and we can give them a lot better show if we if we work a little bit. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah. that kind of got it off in that direction. It took it away from from shooting and all that legitimacy to uh, to a bit of a work. And then, then uh, I think a lot of guys really saw the big picture as the hey, this could be a big sport, and uh, and because if you were to shoot every night, you you can think about it. If you oh, yeah. wrestle three times a week, you get hurt. You well, shoot, God, yeah. you get hurt, and you know yeah. you you couldn't wrestle, but maybe once every three weeks, and uh, so you know they had to figure out how the heck can we do this and not kill ourselves and not right. not hurt each other so badly. So uh, Roy. Took that trip, like I said, left uh, Ohio and went south into Tennessee, and and he he kind of started establishing his territory, his his business, and he really did a phenomenal job of it because he just kept he he basically ran everything from Kentucky to the Gulf of Mexico, uh, straight down the center of the South. Uh, you know, uh, he he's a uh, is a huge, huge area. And then he, he, he started putting family members in. He had three brothers. Two of them were about the same age he was. And one was 20 years younger than they were. Mm-hmm. So, uh, he took one of his brothers named Herb and, uh, taught him to shoot. And Herb became a f- huge star. Uh, he was the world junior heavyweight champion for five years undefeated. And had a car wreck and they took the belt away because he couldn't defend it. But he came back and won it two times after that. Uh, Herb became a huge star. He had another brother named Jack. Uh, they went into Tennessee and invented tag team wrestling because they had two oh. brothers. That's yeah. where tag team wrestling came from. His <laughs> boy had a brother. He had actually three brothers. But uh, two of them could work, so he says, "Heck, let's 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 get two of us in the ring at a time and wrestling two other guys." 
uh, obviously, that's a major part of the sport. I mean, uh, you know, that developed into huge stuff. And then it was six-man tags. Uh, you know, he went into the, both of those brothers being in there. So, I mean, he was extremely innovative, not just yeah. tough, but he, he was a thinker. And, uh, and he controlled his territory with an iron hand. I mean, yeah. guys were horrified of him. They, you know, cause he was such a great shooter. Dutch Mantell, the old timer that had taught him was one of the greatest shooters of all time. And, uh, and not a very handsome guy. If you ever see a picture of the <laughs> original Dutch Mantell, you know, he's a scary looking guy. Yeah. Himself, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, Don't want to mess with him. That's crazy. Um, but you know, you talk about the, how things changed into a work. And not only did it allow you to work more, because like you said, if you're, if you're shooting every night, you're, you're going to take the risk of, of getting hurt and you can't. That's your livelihood. But another rich part of this, and I know you could elaborate on this a great deal, is that it brought the psychology into the business and telling stories, which made it much more compelling for people to get involved. So how did that, uh, and, and maybe your, your grandfather, maybe, uh, I don't know if he had a gift for that as well. It sounds like he did. But when did that really start becoming a part of it? Well, I mean, when you get you get a territory, I can see back in that time frame, you've got a territory and you've got yeah. some guys. They, then they all have shooting backgrounds. I mean, you don't get to be a wrestler back in those days by just showing up in some place say, "I want to be a wrestler." Right. You know, they would they would hurt you. In yeah. fact, uh, 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 Dutch Mantel broke Roy's ribs the very first time he worked out with him on purpose. Hook yeah. scissored him from behind and broke his ribs and him screaming, you know, I give, I give, I give. He just broke him anyway. Yeah. And he, he didn't want him to come back. And Roy went back two or three times. So Roy had, had this group of wrestlers that, that he, they had was traveling with him. And, uh, you know, he started thinking about, uh, you know, how can, how can storyline. Yeah. You no, know, yeah. uh, rather than just wrestling, when you've got a card night after night and, and you, let's say you go to the same towns, uh, five weeks out of eight or, or something like that and the fans are seeing you again and again and again, you're wrestling against the same guys, you gotta have something happen that's unusual. Something yeah. happens that the fans go, wow, did you see what happened in that? Oh man, wouldn't you like to see that match? All of a sudden then the houses are start jumping. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they were, he was pretty much in the forefront of a lot of that. He was very, very sharp guy and he figured out how to work angle every once in a while. Uh, they would bleed, but it was always a hard way. It was mm -hmm. not it was not a blade or anything. I mean, they busted each other, <laughs> beat their other's eyes or, you know, their noses or whatever it was until you were bleeding really good. And, uh, so, you know, they, they, that really helped develop business and, uh, kind of drove it to the next level in a way. Yeah. Good, good versus evil. That's, I mean, they recognized that early on. I mean, that's where we got our baby faces and heels and it was a formula that worked for, uh, you know, God, a hundred years. Forever. <laughs> I mean, but we yeah. see it, we see it blurring a little bit now. Oh yeah. But back then that's what it was. I mean, it was good versus evil and there was a thousand different ways to tell the story. Uh, so as you're growing up in this, were you, did you have a, uh, the feeling that, you know, you would eventually end up in the business because you were also a very gifted athlete besides being six, nine and, uh, when did basketball 
become part of it? Was it just something I'm going to do this because I love playing the game? Eventually, I'll be a wrestler. Or what was the thought process? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I grew up in a wrestling family. I went to yeah. my first wrestling match when I was nine days old. I don't oh, remember. Wow. wow. But, you know, uh, my grandmother held me on the first row of ringside. My granddad was in the ring and his brother hurt. So, uh, you know, I, and I watched my dad for all those years and it was something I wanted to do. I was lucky. I was tall, but I was very thin in high school. It took a while for me to put on weight and I just uh, gravitated to basketball. It was a perfect sport for me. And, uh, and I was pretty darn good at it. So, uh, you know, I got a scholarship and, uh, went one, my freshman year to Clemson University and then I transferred to University of Miami, finished my college career. But, uh, yeah, basketball worked out well for me, uh, but my dad never liked it. He he never liked, liked when I was playing ball because he would go, man, you, you're never going to put on any weight. Look at you. You just run up and down the floor all the time. He goes, you don't work out. you got to work out, you know. So I never yeah. started really working out till I was about 16 years old. And uh, I had Joe Scarpa, Jay Strongbow, okay, yeah. uh, for fans out of the Northeast, Jay Strongbow, uh Taught me how to work out when I was a junior in high school. Uh, he would, he taught me so well that, uh, I, I gained 60 pounds in three months, uh, between my, the end of my junior year and the start of my freshman, my, my senior year in high school. So I went from 160 to 200 in three months with really a tr- great trainer. Uh, you know, as far as uh, lifting weights. And so, you just got to know Jay because he was uh, working in the business at the time? Because uh, uh, you know, I got to know Jay when I was with the WWF, but I didn't know that uh, you had that connection to him. Was it from him working oh, yeah. in the business? Uh, he was one of my greatest. Oh, well, he was he was far past. You know, he was a different uh, generation than from, from my grandfather. He was more yeah. my father's generation. Okay, right. But my father started promoting towns when he got to be about 25 years old. And he kind of located himself along the Gulf Coast down there in Mobile, Alabama, Pensacola, over to mm-hmm. Tallahassee, into New Orleans. And uh, he uh, brought in J- Joe Scarpa. That's yeah. Jay Strongbow's real name. So Joe Scarpa was one of his guys. And when he later on goes to Atlanta and gets involved in the Atlanta promotion and becomes one of the owners in Atlanta, he takes Joe Scarpa there. And Joe Scarpa lived a half a mile away from our, where we lived. And Joe was a tremendous athlete. Uh, yeah. so it was unbelievable. And he, he spent a lot of time with me. He, we played basketball together. We played football <laughs> together. We played all kinds of different sports. He was such a great athlete. And since you're familiar with him, he one time got, uh, got invited to come to Atlanta because the Braves were there. The professional baseball team had just come and they, and they, and they, they wanted to have a home run contest and they wanted to bring every type of athlete in there. And he represented wrestlers. Uh-huh. And he told me, he says, you, Hey boy, you want to go with me? I'm going into Atlanta to Brave Stadium and I'm going to hit some home runs. And I was like, oh, what are you, are you serious, man? He goes, yeah, yeah. What do you know about that? I'd never seen him play baseball. Uh-huh. So we go in there and honest to goodness, Sean, it was un- absolutely unbelievable. I mean, nobody else in any other sport hit a single home run. And I bet you Scarpa hit 20. It was really? like, oh, they, <laughs> See, they, I, they, I never to, they wanted to put <laughs> him on the team. They said, man, you're in the wrong sport. Yeah, you know, yeah. how about you play baseball? So he was a great guy, close, close personal friend. Uh, 
And he used to wrestle with me and shoot with me a lot. And he would get me down and he would waller me horribly. Man, he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't put holes on me and, and hurt me to a great extent, but he would just really, really. And I would cuss him. I'm like 16 years old. I would cuss him and I would say, Joe, someday I'm going to kick your ass for this. You know, and he'd laugh. Ha ha ha. First time I worked in Madison Square Garden, 1973, I go in the dressing room and I sit down. He's, tie, he's tying his boots and he doesn't notice who, who came in. I can't I sit down next to him. And he, uh, he turned his head sideways and he looked at me, kind of looked up and down. And, uh, and he says, uh, he says, I hope you don't remember that you're going to kick my ass. <laughs> <laughs> I was right. considerably bigger me. than yeah. he was at that point. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, and you, you, you mentioned that uh, basketball was good to you. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, we're talking what sixties, uh, you know, the NBA, ABA, all these uh, pro teams. Was that a possibility for you or, or no? Yes. To play probably was. I, in fact, I did not work, I did not stay my last year of college. I left to start wrestling. But I, if I had gone back as a senior, I would have had a very good chance to play in, in either the ABA or the NBA. Played against some tremendous ball players in, uh, in college. I played against Artis Gilmore and Dave uh, Cowens, uh, uh, geez, uh, Henry Bibby and, uh, the UCLA national championship team that year, uh, uh, Jacksonville, who was number two in the country that year with, uh, artist Gilmore, uh, uh, you know, I just, uh, I had a great experience playing, playing ball in, in college and, and it, it, it was good for me, you know, for my yeah. career. Uh, and I, I, I wouldn't have done it differently. I, I'm, I'm glad I'd spent that time playing basketball and, and I think if I had really wanted to pursue it, I, I would have, I would have probably had an opportunity to play basketball, pro ball. Yeah, well, back then you probably made more from wrestling. And uh, what was it that made that decision, though, that you decided, okay, it's time to go to to start working the business? Uh, my brother, I got a brother who's younger than me, and he yeah, was Robert. he was Robert, yeah. and he was wrestling. And uh, I would come home from college, and you didn't have any money, you know, you weren't getting paid, and you know, and I and I'd be broke, and he's he's working, he's wrestling every night, you know, and he would he would say, uh, hey, can I buy you a steak dinner, you know, and uh, you know, he would rub it in big time, you know, that he had a little bread in his pocket, and I was like, well, come on, man, I said, you're smaller than I am, Rob, I, I can make more money than what you're making, you know, and he said, well, go ahead, man, you can give up that basketball. And he kept hammering to me, and then finally I said, you know, I, it didn't make any sense for me to stay in there. And you're exactly right. During that time frame, and I'm sure yeah. people don't realize it, but uh, you made less money been playing pro ball basketball than what wrestlers were making. That's for darn sure back in the late 60s. Yeah, uh, early baseball 70s. and everything else. I mean, uh, yeah. it, was, it wasn't what it is today by any stretch of the imagination. And so, uh, so what was your first experience though, as far as really becoming professional? Professional. I don't know if you had trained along the way because, you know, you, it was part of the family business, basically. Trained but, always. Uh, yeah. So were you prepared for that at that time or did you oh, really have yeah. to? I mean, my dad prepared us. I mean, yeah. you know, my dad, my dad planned on us being wrestlers, whether we wanted to be wrestlers or not, but we grew up with a wrestling ring in the backyard instead of a basketball go. You know, I mean, uh, you and you were in that wrestling ring and he even hired a wrestler that trained him, an old shooter that had trained him and trained uh, and worked for my grandfather, a guy named Charlie Carr. 
was a fantastic shooter, an old time shooter. And, uh, Charlie lived with us and, and mm-hmm. we spent our afternoons when you came home from school, you went to the ring and, uh, it, you, we were ready. I mean, we were trained for it. We were trained to shoot. He did not smarten us up, uh, until we started wrestling, <laughs> you know, uh, so we, all we learned to do was shoot and, and mm-hmm. we were good. We were good. I remember guys would come to the house and knock on the door and say, I want to wrestle. And this is Buddy Fuller live here. And I'd say, yeah, he lives here. And they'd say, hey, I want to wrestle. And I'd go get him. He'd come to the door and he would he would always say, well, I'll tell you what. He goes, uh, if you can beat this skinny kid here, then I'll wrestle you. And we'd go out and usually we didn't have if we didn't have a ring, we'd go out and do it in the grass in the front yeah. yard, backyard or whatever. And I never lost. I mean, he never had to wrestle any of them. Well, Dad, you've never wrestled any of these guys. He goes, yeah, and I'm not going to. Looks That's like right. That's why I got you me. around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I, I think it was what Georgia champ, Championship Wrestling, which is uh, legendary in the history of, of wrestling. Uh, at the time, um, was it uh, a big, I guess, territory, I guess we'd call it, that, uh, you know, was really renowned at the time. Oh yes, yeah. Georgia, Georgia wrestling was very big. Uh, Florida had its yeah, own wrestling Florida. with Eddie Graham and that 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 area down there. Uh, Tennessee was still there, Roy's territory, and he had hooked up with a partner named Nick Goulas, and uh, that was a territory. Uh, obviously, the Carolinas, just north of Georgia, was a territory. Uh, by the 60s, uh, by, probably by the 40s, these ter- territories were all uh, being formed. Yeah. So they had had wrestling in all those southern territories for a long time. Georgia wrestling was tremendous. They had a great crew. I remember the crew when I started in 1970. Nick Bockwinkle was the Georgia champion. Uh, 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 Paul DeMarco was on that card. The Assassins were the hot tag team. Uh they had Louis Talay, uh, they had, oh, I mean, they, they were just loaded with talent there. My dad and his partner was Ray Gunkel, who was one of the owners there as well, and uh, an old football player from Purdue. And, uh, you know, just, uh, their, their business was just gigantic during that time frame. Uh, it was, wrestling was so hot. In the late sixties and into the seventies, well, hell, all the way through the eighties, basically too. But, uh, I mean, Rob and I started, uh, basically there. Rob started there. And then when we both, I got started, we wrestled tag matches against the assassins and guys like that. Green kids, man, that didn't know anything, but God, those guys were so good at leading you. The matches were unbelievable. Uh, you know, you would, they would get more out of you than you ever dreamed that you could do. Because they were just such good f- professionals in the ring, and yeah, yeah, they had a tremendous territory in Georgia, as this, as they did in Florida. Once I left Georgia, I went to Florida, and I spent four years in Florida, my first four years, and I was introduced to the Snake Pit. I don't know if you know anything about the Snake Pit. Snake Pit is the shooting capital of professional wrestling, and. Uh, the, there was a building that they did their televisions in, and they owned that building. The Florida office owned the building, called it the Sportatorium, and the ring stayed up in there all the time. And every day from 71 to 73, uh, about three mornings a week at least, you'd show up there at 9 o'clock, and there would be guys in there wanting to shoot. Uh, it was Bob Roop, 
uh, Jack Briscoe, Hiro Matsuda, uh, uh, Don Curtis, uh, uh, oh, and a lot of other guys that came through and showed us moves and showed us holes. And, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't the whole crew that all wanted to be shooters, but, you know, the guys that really, really had their heart in the business wanted to know how to do all this stuff. They, if you ever needed to shoot and you didn't have the ability to do it, boy, you're, you're in bad shape. Yeah, you're back then, for sure. Yes, because you, you, you know, could get I, tried. Yeah, and I, and I wanted to ask you about that because it was a blend. As you said, You if you wanted to last in the business, you did have to know how to shoot. Uh, it wasn't always in your best interest to do that because, like you said, you had to continue to work. And no matter how good you were, you could still suffer injuries. But what – I don't know what you'd call it, but what what would you – how would you describe that style of wrestling where it was uh, – a lot of it was – was there was shoot and, shooting involved, but also, you know, you worked. So how would you explain that style? Well, i tell you what. I'm, probably a good way to explain it is there was two guys in particular during this time frame uh, that that to me had the most unbelievable wrestling matches that, that maybe that I ever saw. And uh, it was Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr. And those guys would do those hour broadways and they would not throw a punch. It was an all wrestling match. Fans can't imagine that anymore. And yeah. I mean, those arenas would be packed to the roof and nobody sitting on the butts. Ooh. I mean, they had them so good. It was like, it gave me goosebumps to stand and watch it. I, every time I had the opportunity, I never left the building early if those guys were in the main event. I wanted to see that for myself, uh, because it was a learning experience, but the, it wasn't just those two guys back in that time frame in Florida. Eddie Graham was very, very, uh, he, he, he was, into shooting he was into yeah. wrestling he yeah. was into that's the name on the marquee and by god they're going to get it tonight in that ring and he wanted those guys he would bring those amateurs bob roop from the olympic team and uh dale lewis from and then but danny hodge i mean he he the territory was full of them yeah. i mean you had to you had to know a little bit of shooting there or you would be scared of working with some of the guys you were working with yeah, that, that's incredible because uh, that is a, a lost art that uh, you don't see rarely ever now. But but back then it was it was it was part of it that like you had to be uh, able to handle yourself if you got in that situation. And you um, couldn't get in the business if, if yeah, you weren't right. Yeah, they, they they would. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'll give you another example. Uh, Hulk Hogan, that's his home. Yeah. Comes from Tampa. He goes into the Snake Pit. You know, and he's a big son of a gun, you know, and uh, but he don't know any wrestling at all. And 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 Eddie, you know, and he's got the long blonde hair and he, he, he had the Hulk look, but he was a little bit different because he ends up starting to wrestle for me in my second wrestling company. Mm. Uh, but he shows up there. This is I've already gone from when he starts. Uh, from Tampa, from the Tampa area, but he shows up there and the very first day, uh, Eddie buzzes Matt Suda and he says, I don't like him. I don't like his look. And it hurt him and he broke yeah, his leg. Broke his leg. Matt wow. Suda broke his leg. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, they didn't want to train him right. and, and he came back. Yeah, you know? he showed up. And well, uh, that's the thing. That's they tested you. I mean, they wanted, even if they, 
you know, had an interest. They wanted to see how bad you wanted it because, there you, go. you know, and, and that was the thing. They weren't going to smarten you up either until they knew that uh, you were going to, you know, be somebody exactly who was right. serious. Exactly about it. right. Yeah. It goes back to that same first workout that Roy had with, uh, yeah. with the, with the, with the shooter man, with the big boy and uh, with Dutch and with Dutch Mantel. And he broke his ribs on purpose. Yeah. And he yeah. told him in that Dutch accent, uh, Roy, I said, well, what did he say after he broke your ribs? And he said, he told me in that accent, he said, I don't think you'll be back anymore, will you? <laughs> and uh, Roy said, no, I'll be back. And uh, he said he, he, it took him two months to get his ribs well, and he went back, and he broke his wrist the next time. Shit. Well, I mean, you know, they, yeah. he was just, he, he, it was the way it was done back in those days. You did not get to be a wrestler by God if you didn't earn it. You yeah. had to earn it. Absolutely. And, and so many great names. There's, uh, just legendary that, uh, that you were working with every day. Uh, one in particular who was always one of my favorites, you know, when I was an announcer with the, the, the WWF was, was Andre, Andre yeah. the Giant. And I hope this is, is true that, I mean, that you, that you saw a, a young Andre and, and work with him. And I, I don't know where you, you did a tag team with him. Uh, I've done all kinds with, of matches with Andre. I mean, yeah. uh, I love what Andre. was he like? Cause I heard, you know, I've talked with Pat Patterson when, when he like first saw him and he was this, you know, uh, tall, of course, but he was, he was, he didn't weigh 400 pounds and that he was very nimble. Uh, was that true? Oh yeah. Yeah. Huh? He was very athletic. Gosh, yes. Andre could do things. I, I saw Andre drop kick. I've seen Andre do all kinds of different moves. I mean, Andre had tremendous talent, but Andre went through that same stuff. He, he went to Montreal and, uh, and they had a lot of shooters up there and, and they put him through the, the red, the, just like everybody else. He did not get a special treatment. And, but Andre, to me, God, he was one of the most lovable characters in all of yeah. the, all of the sport. Uh, I got tremendous Andre stories. I mean, Andre was just, uh, he was unbelievable, just and a, and a fantastic person, just a phenomenal person, uh, yeah. just very quiet and polite, uh, just amazing guy. As long as you liked him. I mean, as long as he liked you is what, yes. it, you know, because yeah, well, and he, he loved me. He really liked yeah. me. Uh, and he liked my brother and my family. I think he had respect for my family because we had all been there and he knew it. And, uh, and, and we treated him with great respect too. Uh, and I, you know, had so many drinking experiences with Andre and, you know, I mean, he's a partier. He had liked to had a oh, yeah. good, have a good time. Because he was miserable in his life, uh, Vince, once Vince put him on the road, Vince had no sympathy. Vince Sr. had no sympathy for Andre and how much time he was away from his family. And he didn't have a normal life. He was a world oh, champion God, no. without being a world champion. Yeah. And I don't think people really understand uh, what he went through because, like you said, you knew him. So you knew he, he was this really wonderful person. But at the same time, you know, uh, people who didn't and didn't weren't allowed past that, uh, that barrier were, were good reason because he was, he was treated like a freak to them and he would be sitting in an airport and people would come up and demand that he sign something, whatever. And it got to a point, you know, uh, that, that people just didn't understand that. And oh, yeah. like I said, it wasn't that he had to like you. It's just like you mentioned. Uh, he, I'll give he you had to have, feel story. that respect. 
Yeah. I got an airport story. Atlanta Airport. Uh, we're going from Knoxville to my I'm I've got a southeastern territory in Knoxville and I've just started a second mm-hmm. territory out of Pensacola, Florida. And we are going me and him to open up the south end, the, the Pensacola, the very first night. We're in a town called Dothan, Alabama, one of the best little wrestling cities in the world. And uh, Andre, we're going through the Atlanta airport. And when I go pick him up, he's had a big night. He's drank a whole bunch, as he always did. And he said, Ron, I don't want anybody to wake me up. You want to sleep here in the airport. And I said, Ooh. geez, Andre, I don't know, man. That's going to be pretty. He said, so he went and bought a newspaper and he took the newspaper, the front page and the back page and he laid, sat down in a chair and he put the paper over his face uh-huh. and portion of his body. It wouldn't cover all of his body. And he <laughs> says, the Sunday paper for that. Yeah. Yeah. No rip. <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, he says, Ron, uh, don't let anybody bother me. Well, yeah. For, yeah, that, you know, right away, here they come. They recognize, God, that's Andre the Giant. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, finally one guy comes and, you know, most of them I'd say, hey, man, leave him alone. He's sleeping. Go. Take off. Yeah. You know, but uh, one guy, he won't take no for an answer. He, I want an autograph. I want an autograph. I said, man, you better go. No, I want to go. Finally, man, I, I couldn't take it. I said, go ahead. Ask him. So he goes over and Andre's laying there asleep and he taps him on the shoulder. And he, and Andre doesn't even react. Uh, and he taps him, has to tap him three or four times. Mr. Giant, Mr. Giant, at least he's calling him Mr. You know, but uh, he's tapping him on the shoulder. And uh, Andre never gets up or anything. He just says real loud. He goes, go away. And the, <laughs> and the paper floated up about six or eight inches off his face and came back down on his body again. I laughed. I was like, yeah. oh, and the guy took off running down the <laughs> down the aisle there man he was like full speed god he was scared to death harp yeah. he's here. lucky it wasn't worse for him that's for, for yeah. sure yeah but 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 you know you have to understand that uh it was it was a very difficult life for him and traveling was just ridiculous i mean the people have to understand imagine getting on a plane and they were not making accommodations back then for people who were large they didn't do that so he would get in, and even if it was first class, he'd still have to be jammed into a seat. He couldn't use the bathroom. Uh, imagine that, trying to get into uh, oh, you yeah. know an airport, uh, an airplane bathroom. And there were these, no matter you know where he went. Going to Japan must have been oh, an absolute nightmare because it. everything was so small. I made trips to Japan, uh, and uh, my legs would hang off the bed from the knees down. Yeah. And I would <laughs> think about poor Andre. I'm, yeah. I'm laying in that bed miserable as hell and I'm thinking, damn, what did Andre do in these places? Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, it was a hard, hard life for Andre. Uh, he, he was just, but he was such a wonderful guy and had such a, he, he made the most of his life really. Yeah. Uh, and guys loved him. The, the wrestlers loved him. The boys yeah. loved him because of who he was and, and how he, how he handled it, you know. You know, it, uh, God, you, you, I, I'm sure you could tell stories just for hours and hours. That's why you have a podcast of, uh, uh over a hundred episodes. But, um, when did, uh, I don't know if you paid attention along the way uh, to the business, but when did you decide, uh, you know, the family had been a part of it that you were going to strike out on your own and, and start your own, uh, organization? 
believe it was Southeastern Championship Wrestling. Was that your first? Yeah, Southeastern Championship Wrestling in 19, uh, like I said, I went from Georgia to Florida, stayed there for four years. In 1974, I decided I wanted to, I'm ready. I want to run my own company. Uh And I I went to Knoxville on a vacation uh, and I fell in love with that part of the country. I I found the promoter and I bought the business from him. Mm. And, uh, I'd, I'd never run a company, but I had been, they had used me in, in West Palm Beach when they opened up down there, brand new auditorium. They sent me out of Tampa and I lived down there for two years and I ran that town for them, which gave me a lot of uh, experience with being what, what promoters do and what owners of companies do. It helped me a heck of a lot. Uh, but I had that company in Knoxville. It started off slow because the, area had not had much wrestling they the, the the main stars there was a guy named ron wright and his brother don wright and they were hitting guys with chisels and things like that and it, it was it was like a blood and guts thing and i wanted to have that florida wrestling atmosphere it's wrestling on the marquee i wanted it in the building too and right. i started bringing in the bob roops and i brought in the ronnie garvins and the bob orton juniors and the and the malenko and uh uh, Jesus, Hodge, and, uh, you know, just all types of different guys that were really great wrestlers. And I changed the whole perspective and I, I exploded it. That company just, uh, that town that had just been a small little town, they draw 2,000 people, drawing 10,000 people. I mean, it was like wow. the building couldn't hold them. It was yeah. just, it just really caught on fire. And then after four years of it, I said, I got the, I got it down. I, I see I can do it. I want to do it somewhere else too. I want this one and then I want another one. Mm-hmm. So I went south and, uh, and another part of my family named the Fields brothers had bought from my father in 1960. My father went there in 1954 along the Gulf Coast and started his company, first company. And then he sold out to his nephews and his his cousins, basically, three cousins. They were wrestlers. And they all had boys that grew up as wrestlers or referees and things Uh like that. So I go down there and I get a second company started. And then in 79, I have a a wrestling war uh, where – Five of the guys in my territory try to take the territory. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it, uh, I've had a lot of experiences in the wrestling business and, uh, and I, I ran that company. Uh, then, uh, I, after in 79, I sold it to Jim Barnett, who had bought yeah. Atlanta and uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling, went yeah. on to have Ted Turner's station. Yeah. Uh, he was a pr- personal friend. I'd wrestle for him twice in Australia two different tours in Australia. Uh, he really liked me, and I liked him as well. Uh, I don't know if you know much about Jim Barnett. Maybe the most mysterious and uh, and uh, different wrestling promoter ever in history. One of the smartest, most brilliant mm-hmm. guys. Uh, really, really a tremendous, tremendous personality himself. Uh so, you know, Barnett buys me out. I go to Pensacola. We do tremendous business along the Gulf Coast, all through Alabama, uh, Mississippi, uh, back up into the edges of Tennessee. Five years later, I've changed the name of the company to Continental Wrestling. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I expand on up to Kentucky. So I'm basically in 1985 as Continental Wrestling doing the same thing my granddad did. I'm running everything basically from Kentucky to uh, the Gulf Coast. 
Yeah. Well. Uh, so, uh, you know, I had a big, great experience, uh, but back in those days, by the time we switch it over to Continental, I've got the Armstrongs, Bob Armstrong, and he has four fantastic young sons that are going to be stars, right? And I see it, and I go, geez, Bob, uh, we we work an angle. Me and Bob work an angle with flair. Uh, where Bob is a baby face, I'm a baby face, there's a big tournament to see who's going to wrestle Flair for the world championship in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, 15,000 people come to the, the tournament. And, uh, so in the tournament, we have a strictly baby face match, no punching, no nothing. And, uh, and I beat him. I get him at the end, a real quick little pin of some kind. Mm-hmm. And then he comes on TV the next week. And he says to me uh, on television, he goes, Ron, it was a fantastic match. You're a tremendous wrestler. He says, I want to be a part of this. I want to have some part, and you're going to beat Flair. You are going to be the next world champion. I want to be the referee. Can I be the referee in this match just so I can see it? And then he screws me. Him and Flair screw me in this match. And uh, we we ran that angle for five years. <laughs> family versus family for five years and just sold out buildings all over the South with the Armstrongs and the Fullers, the Welches. Um, you know, there's, there's so much to how these, uh, this crossover, but, uh, I, I want to just get back a little bit because, you know, cable television t- changed everything. That's when, uh, these television reaches, which were so important. Television was so important in selling tickets and getting people to come to these, uh, venues. But you were pretty innovative at the time. Everybody had to have a TV. And I, I just remember those early days. We're talking, you know, 70s or early 80s. It was pretty basic stuff. It was in a right. studio and you had your hard camera. And, but but you were doing different things then. And I, I, I can't help but wonder, like, where did that come from? I mean, uh, that you were bringing in different effects and making sure it looked good and how did you have that realization there? Where did you get the background to do it? Well, I'd never seen it done, but I'd always wondered why why every other sport had instant replay and, yeah. and why why there was no instant replay the capability in studios. I always hated that one camera, two camera deal. Mm. Uh, once I got my territory started, my first territory started. I was on a very weak station. I'd bought it into the company and they had a horrible station. It didn't have any range to it. Uh, the, the studio was just terrible. So I, I managed to get on the biggest station in Tennessee and they had a tremendous signal and they had a fabulous studio. And I went in and from the very beginning, I said, they said, how many cameras do you want? I said, I want four. And I, uh-huh. you know, like, I, I was like, going to be lucky to get two, right? But, yeah, but I yeah. insisted. I want four, four, four cameras. Uh, and then I want to do instant replay. And they <laughs> were like, wow, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now you, you know, so, so, uh, I, I went upstairs with them in the control room and, and they said, I said, is this your tape machines? This was back uh, in 1974. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they had two two inch tape machines, and I said, "Do you have you run both? Can you run both your tape machines at the same time?" They said, "Yes." I said, "What happens if you run your tape machine? You run one, and it's actually running and recording the show. That second one is just used to replay the finishes on those matches." And uh, we talked about it for a few minutes, and the guy tried it. He and he thought about it, and he says. 
you know, I think we can do instant replay. And I it's said, work, damn yeah. right we can. And I <laughs> said, can you do split screen? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, you got four cameras. I said, can you give me a shot, two shots in the same picture? One guy on one corner, one guy in the other corner if I wanted. Can you? And they got, yeah, sure. We got four cameras. Why not? So, and I said, can you give me personality profile? I want to have something in the middle of my show that's nowhere in wrestling anywhere. And it's not anything to do with uh, trying to sell tickets. It's a, it's a profile just talking about okay. a guy's background and all that. I, I really got real innovative. And one of the reasons I did is my commentator was another wrestler named Les Thatcher. Who had, I had met in Florida when I first started and he had, we, we talked about it on a lot of trips. What could we do if we had our own territory? How could we make wrestling better than what it is? These studio shows. And, uh, what we did is we innovated. We had the best wrestling show, studio show maybe ever done. Yeah. Uh, in 74, 75 to all the way to 79. And when I went south into Pensacola and we started producing the show at a station down there in Alabama, I insisted we have everything. We want this instant replay. I want four cameras. I want, I want split screen, I, you know, and, uh, and it just, uh, it, it worked. It would, yeah. it, it was one of the reasons I think we started selling out. It was because wrestling was not really looked at as being a major sport, but we made it a major sport by the way we were doing it and and, and the time and the thought we were putting into it. Fans were just like blown away by it. They're like, yeah. wow. And, and, you know, and back in those days, Sean, had there been cable, we would have been the horses. Yeah. If we'd have been shown our show, would have been going around everybody else doing their little rinky-dink studio shows, people would have been going, wow, what about this show? You know? So... Well, I bet I bet Vince Jr. was was watching because uh, you know when his product came out, he was uh, and never and never changed. Uh, Vince, you know, was uh, ahead of the curve on a lot of the uh, state of the art effects. I, I I bet he was watching some of your shows early on. I don't know if you ever had a conversation with him. Uh, but, no, I never I never met Vince Jr. But a senior senior and I were yeah. were, were pretty decent friends. Uh, saw him every year at the National Wrestling Alliance meetings. Uh, and, and my program was so good that every year at the National Wrestling Alliance meeting, they would give me 30 minutes. They would say, Ron, tell us what to do. Mm. I would go to the front yeah. and, and explain how you do instant replay. How do you do split screen? You know, <laughs> I was like, wow. in fact, in 85, I was elected the vice president of the NWA at 27 mm. years old. Huh? <laughs> you know, well, ahead of your time. It hurt a lot. Of yeah, but, uh, you know, and you mentioned cable and, and people like to give Vince credit for, you know, uh, taking his, his product and taking it across the country. And he was very innovative with a lot of things with, you know, the syndication and, and sending tapes out to local stations and that. But it wasn't as though there weren't other promoters who had the same idea uh, prior to that. And at the same time he was doing it, he just was the one who pulled it off. And did you ever envision that? Was that, uh, in your head at all that saying, Hey, you know, with this, you know, watching what they had in uh, Atlanta with the Superstation, uh, thinking what, what the possibilities were? Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, yeah. in uh, 1985, uh, Vince was beginning to start to take and jump into territories. He was yeah. beginning to, to pull talent from different territories, and he was beginning to try to flex his muscles somewhat. And uh, I had a company out of Houston, Texas, 
that uh, came and watched my program. And uh, they put me into the Middle East, into Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And uh, huh. uh, they saw it. And, and they, they, then they, then they called me up and they said, uh, Ron, we want you to come to New York. We have an NBC appointment. We want you to, we want you to make a pitch for national television. And, uh, and I was like, wow, guys, are you serious? And they, yes, yes. Uh, and so I flew to New York and, uh, and we went to NBC and, and I sat down with the people and they, they liked my ideas. They watched my program. They were like, wow, we were moved out of the studio. We were doing it in a 7,000 seat arena that was full of people. It was, it was big time and they recognized it and they, they offered me the deal. They, you know, but, but I was a member of the National Wrestling Alliance. I, I, I did not know how in the world am I going to do this if I do it, uh, uh, how am I going to, uh, I wanted, I would have done it if I had have had Vince's opportunity. If I had taken that opportunity, wrestling would be totally different than it is today because I would not have gone after everybody. I would have put everybody's stars on my national show. I would have made wrestling monstrous because I would have never changed what he did. I would have never gotten away from the, from the storyline and from the uh, from the blood and and from the from the wrestling, the bottom line, it's on the marquee. Put it in the ring. I would have. I think I could. It would have changed everything in the sport. So would you have, uh, in effect, kept the territories and then uh, kept have, them? You know, I would have let everybody giant... keep their business. Uh. Why? Why be greedy and want it all? I don't understand <laughs> that. That never made sense to me. I mean, why did he have to have it all? Uh, I, I mean, there, if you had that national program, why couldn't you go to everybody and say, look, guys, I got something that's going to build us all. I'm not going to tear you down. I want to build us all into a bigger, bigger business. I want yeah. us all to go this direction rather than the direction he took it. Yeah. Well, but there, there are so many personalities. I would have really liked to have seen how that would have uh it had been different. Out. Yeah, that's it would have been. I, that's why I, I mean, told them no. That's yeah. why I told yeah. them no. Turned them down because I, I, I knew that, gosh, this is going to be really difficult to get these guys to work with, yeah. work with together in a way. Well, you because know? there are a lot, you know, Ron, there are a lot of them that were trying to do the same thing. Vince just, uh, had a better plan and in the end out, outlasted them all and, and took them one at a time. And the ones who, ones who went with them were rewarded and the other ones that didn't, uh, we're crushed, and yeah. uh, you know it's a, and it changed the business forever. There's no question about that. We're, uh, you know, at, at some point did you say enough? Because it wasn't long after that that uh, you got out of the business. You yeah. sold off the yeah. Was that? I mean, uh, 19, uh, 1988, 1988. Uh, con- I I sold Continental in '87 because I saw it happening, and I went back to Knoxville because I liked that part of the country. I did six months of shows there. Uh, I named that company uh, USA Wrestling, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a sweet little program too. It was a big studio. Uh, it was a ballroom actually, in a, in a Coliseum ballroom, and it was really, really a good television product as well. But I could see what was coming. I, I could see that you're not going to be able to compete with Vince. Uh, you know, when he's buying the talent and then he's bringing them back and using them against you. 
Uh, and what was we were doing, Sean, is we were responsible for some of the greatest stars that Vince ever had. Uh, Hulk Hogan came from us. Uh, Brutus the Beefcake came from us. Honky uh, uh, Talk Man came from us. Arn Anderson came from us. I mean, it was like we were rolling out some of the best talent in the world. And uh, yeah. if I had stayed, I, I, I think I could have really made an impact. But I, I said, no, it, I just don't like where it's going. And I quit and I sat for a year and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I had a friend of mine that there was a minor league hockey team in Knoxville. And he says, Ron, have you ever seen a hockey game? And I said, not on person. And we went down <laughs> to watch a hockey game. Were I you a hockey the, fan at all? I wasn't even a hockey fan. I had <laughs> seen a few yeah. games on TV, but I'd never been yeah. to a game in my life. And we went and watched the first period, and they all sat on their hands. I watched the way they were introduced. I watched the whole product. And uh, and I was just about ready to leave the building, and all of a sudden, they dropped two guys dropped their gloves. And for the first time in that night, everybody stood up. And when that happened, I turned to the, my buddy who took me there, and I said, I can identify with this, man. We, <laughs> we need to get in this. It's a shit. And, uh, and, and we did. We, yeah, we got into, yeah. jumped into minor league hockey and God dog, we, we tore it up. We changed hockey. We changed hockey. We brought wrestling to hockey. We brought the dark and the lights and play the music and where's the spotlight. And just, we just did it totally different. And this league was a four team league. They weren't drawing a thousand people a game. First night in Nashville, Tennessee, which is deep south. They figure, how the hell are you going to draw anybody to a hockey game in Nashville? When we went there, they said, you'll never make it. You won't draw 500 people. First night was 6,000 people in the wow. building. And they were like, wow, what in the hell? How did you do that? We went to Cincinnati a year later, 10,000 in the arena every night. I mean, we were the number one drawing minor league operation in the world in hockey. Wow. We, were, we were cranking it for them. Did you then you think back about uh, some of the promotions that you did and and getting not just with wrestling and I, I imagine you could have done it with anything you could just look at things and say this is how we make it better and and to me this is the way my, always been my philosophy it's all about entertainment entertain me if I'm going to sit there and watch something that's all what it, what it comes down to so was it but you would look at some of these things like you said you went to a hockey game you said I can't believe they haven't done this uh, was that how you you approached it all yeah. Yeah, in fact, I'll give you an idea. The first night in Nashville, we had two, because I was a wrestler, and, and yeah. word got around that the wrestlers buying the minor league hockey team in the East Coast Hockey League, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so there was two two big dudes uh, came came down from Edmonton, one from Edmonton and one from another team, the NHL teams. They came down just to see what we did, right? Yeah. So after the first period, they watched my introduction. And uh <laughs> so I, I go over to back to my office after the first period and these two hockey guys come in and I, they're they're mad. They're pissed. They're like, what in the hell are you doing? I said, what do you mean? What am I doing? They go, you can't darken the lights and, and, and play music bad to the bone and and, 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 and the spotlight and the, and the, and the, that ain't hockey. I mean, I, I said, listen, guys, I said, we're in Nashville. We're not in Canada, damn it. I right. said, these people don't know shit about hockey. I said, but right. we're going to teach, we're going to entertain them. 
And if we entertain them, they're going to buy a ticket. And they're going to buy a ticket long enough. They're going to learn the game. And then we got hockey fans and we'll be successful here. Uh, so, you know, but they were like, wow, you cannot do this. I went as far as that first night. I talked to my boys and, and my players and yeah. I said, guys, we're going to do something tonight that's never been done in hockey. And I said, uh, we're going to darken the building and we're going to introduce you individually. We're not going to just skate out there and round around a little circle and nobody announces anything. I said, the building's going to go to black. We're going to play bad to the bone. We're going to spotlight. And when it comes on, we're going to introduce you individually. And, uh, and I said, get, get wild, get crazy. I wanted you to do something that's outrageous for me. And, uh, everybody did a little deal as they came out, but the last guy that was introduced on the team and the other team stopped. They just, they just, they never, nobody had ever seen it. And yeah, they were all like, what the hell are they doing? They lined up on the blue line watching, just standing there. And it's in the dark, right? And, uh, and the last guy that comes out of the dressing room, they introduce him and he takes his hockey stick. He slides out there, man. He skates out on the ice. He drops down on his knees. He flips that hockey stick over like a gun and he machine guns the whole team, the whole other team. That building stood up. I mean, it was like, wow. I I was just amazed at how the fans got into it, and uh, and uh, it would next season everybody's got the lights out, everybody's trying yeah. to copy it, well, you know, and even the NHL, that. those two guys that came there, probably their teams two years yeah, later. Yeah, they went back and themselves. said, hey, guess what we got to do? <laughs> yeah, no rip. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. Oh man, uh, Ron, this conversation has been awesome, and I and I asked you at the beginning of this, were you uh, think of yourself as a wrestler or a promoter? I think you have to rethink that, uh, my friend, because uh, or maybe just say, you know what, I'm an entertainer because, boy, you did it for decades and decades. Uh, and there's so much more you can learn about this tremendous career of uh, Ron Fuller and his family. Uh, folks, go to uh, it's uh, TNStud.com, TennesseeStud.com. He's got a, a tremendous uh, podcast there. I don't know if you want to direct him to other places, but there's uh, I think that's a great start because you've got merchandise there and uh, all things about the history of your family. Uh, any other way that they should be able to be able to look you up? Well, what I do is I do a every week I do a one hour. I call it Studcast, and it, yep. it's basically my family story, starting with my grandfather all the way. I'm going to go all the way, maybe through hockey before yeah. it's all over. It'll be years. But uh I also do a super stud cast, I call it. It's a three hour and it's a deep dive into into different big stars. I mean, I've had Terry Funk and uh, Stan Hansen and uh, I've had, you know, I did just a, I've, I've done 22 of those. Those are three hours long and those are a Patreon product. Uh, you can get it on Tennessee Stud on my website, but it costs two ninety nine. But it's for three hours, and I, oh. sometimes they go almost four hours. And uh, and really, we talk about everything. I mean, we cover so much ground in those programs that, uh, and you can get that on Patreon at at uh, at patreon.com uh, slash studcast. And uh, if you are interested in trying one of those out, but. Uh, those have become extremely popular. Uh, when I got into podcasts, they're again kind of like the other businesses. I said, men, you know, uh, there's got to be a, a way we can do more than what we're doing with just an hour show. And, and we talked about it and, and they said, hey, you know, once you, once you have people pay, it's more difficult. And, uh, you know, they, they were very skeptical, but 
those programs have just really taken off and uh, I'm really proud of that that fans have gotten into uh, into uh, because there's so much history in this great sport it's just amazing you know and uh, when you can talk about different people in different parts of the country and I do them on Australia I do them on Japan I do them on, because I've been everywhere and done those places yeah. too and Andre I got Andre and uh, you know I mean I do so you know I I, I'm and I got into it, Sean. I really didn't know when I started this that that it was going to become something important to me. I thought, well, I'll do a little of this. I see what yeah. happens. But once I really kind of got into it, I'm like, you know, this is, I, yeah, it's it's my legacy. It's uh, yeah. you know, uh, it's my family's history. I mean, it's 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 not just in the podcast about a de- bunch of different things. It's a continual story that just goes week to week, uh, and uh. And then, and, uh, and it's going to go <laughs> through to Southeastern wrestling, through a continental, through a USA and on into hockey. So, uh, it may last a while, but, uh, uh, I just, uh, I'm enjoying it, having a good time. Yeah. So folks, you can get all the information. Like once again, go to tnstud.com and, uh, really it, it's just, uh, uh, such great information. And you mentioned, you know, that period of time and we can break it down why people still love it, but. Uh, they love old school and, uh, you know, we've got a lot happening in the world of professional wrestling still to this day, but it's, it's, uh, it's not, not like it was. And, uh, to learn more uh, of the, of this rich history, check out the website. Ron, thank you so much for coming on primetime. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. You enjoyed it. A great conversation with the Tennessee stud, uh, Ron Fuller. Uh, great stories, did I tell you? I mean, he could just go on and on, and it's just fascinating to hear about that uh, period of time, that that uh, part of history in professional wrestling, because you know there was just so, so much going on, and and you hear about uh, you know all these uh, great great legends. And with Rod, I mean, you could tell, right? You could tell that that uh, that old school blood still courses through uh, Ron's veins. And, uh, you know, I went through a few of the episodes that he's got on his website. I, I mentioned this before uh, we went to the conversation there. It's tnstud.com. And just, I think he's got 121 of them up on, on the website. And just all these different, uh, you know, stories about the old days of the NWA. I mean, he talks about, uh, you know, all these great legends. I mean, when, when you get into it, you can just see he's got these little icons with pictures and, and who he's going to be talking about in these. And it's just, just fascinating. So check it out if you're an old school fan, tnstud.com. And, uh, you know, we've been uh, doing uh, a lot or, or, or trying to get a lot going with the new NWA. Uh, you know, Billy Corgan's uh, took it over in, in uh, 2017, and he has been pushing it forward ever since. And uh, they've got the new power a program that's on YouTube doing exceptionally well. And it's just fun to watch. I just uh, finished watching uh, the uh, episode six. And, you know, and if, if you remember those days when they had uh, studio wrestling, and it's just this uh, very intimate atmosphere, you've got the crowd right there, you actually hear exactly what they're saying, and uh, this back and forth, and uh, some, some good wrestling. So uh, you should check it out. But um, we've been uh, trying to put together a series of interviews with the new stars uh, for the NWA. And, uh, and, and we're going to be uh, you know, putting those up soon. And uh, you know, talking about that, uh, as I mentioned, the YouTube sensation Power Show. 
And stay tuned for those. We're going to be uh, talking to the the big stars, you know, the the world champion Nick Aldis, uh, um, you know, Eli Drake and uh, um, Aaron Stevens, and 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 many more. And uh, really, I just uh, uh, love talking to these guys because they really love uh, professional wrestling. And uh, you know, as Nick said in the conversation we had with him in a podcast a while back, that uh, he he just loves the way. You know that old school and uh, how they used to do things. And if you've watched these, there's there's a real feel for it, and uh, and they have a great time. And and obviously, uh, seeing the response they're getting on YouTube, it it is working. And they've got a lot planned ahead, and they're not just doing this. And they know they're not going to be able to really support it by uh, remaining on YouTube. That's just going to be an outlet for them that will just keep on giving because once you have it up there, and then people can watch it whenever they want, and they can go back and watch these other episodes. So, uh, but they've got other plans and I know they've got a pay-per-view coming up December 14th. So they, uh, they're on the edge of, 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 you know, that social media wave and, and how to use it as a promotional tool. And I think a lot of these other organizations could learn a lot from what they're doing because they are, they're looking way ahead and using some of these other platforms on getting their product out there. And it's just, uh, it's fun to watch. So uh, keep an eye out for that. We'll be making more announcements on that. Uh, again, check out our new YouTube channel, uh, Primetime Mooney. Go to YouTube and just search Primetime Mooney, and it'll take you there. And please subscribe. Become a subscriber uh, so we can keep uh, expanding that, and we'll be putting more and more uh, content up as well. Uh, and, our, of course, our Patreon members, a big shout-out to them. I want to thank you guys for uh, hanging with us uh, throughout it all. And uh, we'd love to have you join us there. Check out uh, our Patreon membership. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash primetimemooney, and you get all of our content early and ad-free uh, for as little as $4.99. And, of course, we'd love to have you uh, uh, become uh, even more active uh, through our other tiers we've got on there, the Mooney, all you Moonies out there, and, and of course, the Legion of Who members. Uh, lots of big perks for that. Uh, the LOWs. Uh, you know, after you've been with us a while, you get your own podcast with me and uh, your own watch along. So uh, just go to patreon.com slash primetime Mooney, patreon.com slash primetime Mooney, and check that out. And uh, speaking of that, our Patreon, we've got an Ask Mooney Anything out this week. So check that out. Really some great questions from you guys, man. I, I love doing those because they're just fun. And, and you guys bring up, uh, you know, memories for me that I, you know, stuff I hadn't thought about in years. So. Be sure and check out that Ask Mooney Anything. Uh, we've got a great network classic out this week. You know, we have that. Uh, that drops every Monday at 6 a.m. And this week we've got uh, WWF Monday Night Raw from January 25th, 1993, in the early days of Raw. And uh, this is a great one. They've uh, In this episode, they've got uh, Mr. Perfect, and uh, Ric Flair going at it. And if you recall back then, remember initially uh, Perfect was in Flair's corner. I don't know if they called him a manager or you know whatever he was, uh, but it, they, they you know that wasn't going to last. And and uh, Rick was uh, had an option with uh, Vince that if he wasn't happy, he could leave. And we'll explain that a lot more uh, in that episode. But check it out. We got the Network Classic that's out uh, this week. Uh, from uh, January 25th, 1993, Ric Flair, the loser, leaves the WWF match and also the Macho Man 
facing Repo Man. Uh, remember that big angle, that huge angle over Randy's hat? That's right. Okay. <laughs> Another Vault episode drops this Saturday at 6 a.m. Oh, we have all kinds of content coming your way. I hope you can catch it all. In the meantime, have a great week, everybody. Until next time, I'm Sean Mooney, and I am out. <laughs>